time you talk to a jury, you want to relate to that jury. You want that jury to think that you are giving them something they're interested in. You're listening to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast, your source for the latest news and trends in family law in the state of Texas. Now here's your host, Attorney Holly Draper. We're excited to welcome Rochelle Rivers as our guest today on the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast. Rochelle goes by Ricky, and she is a founder of Rivers McNamara PLLC in Austin, Texas. She's board certified in civil trial, appellate, and family law, and she's a member of the prestigious American Board of Trial Advocates. Ricky has been trying cases for 46 years, concentrating in the family law arena for most of that time. She frequently writes and talks about trial practice, ethics, and family law topics. She's worked with bar committees addressing trial practice issues, including administration of rules of evidence and the family law pattern jury charge manual. Her practice involves complex family law matters at the trial and appellate levels. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, Holly. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I have uh, the great gift in my life of loving my work. Um, I've been a lawyer for 46 years. I started out after, uh, well, during law school at UT, working at the attorney general's office where I did trial and appellate work, mostly large uh, class action civil rights lawsuits. Um, Got a lot of experience there, left after four years into private practice and essentially say I had two jobs. I started with a local Austin firm then called Hilgers and Watkins, which merged into a regional firm, Brown McCarroll. And then in 2011, my law partner, Mary Evelyn McNamara, and I took the family law section of what we call the big law firm uh, onto our own platform. So we've been operating Rivers McNamara since 2011. Um, we've uh, together done it, done family law work essentially at the trial and, and appellate level. I like to say we represent people. Uh, we rarely represent entities, and uh, we have a pretty diverse uh, group of uh, clients and cases that come to us. How would you describe your current practice? Well, it hasn't changed much in the sense that people come to us because they're having a relationship uh, fear of some sort. Either they're uh, facing a divorce or they have some problem, a post-divorce problem, parenting their children. So we deal with both the money and the relationship, uh, generally parenting issues that come from that situation. I started out practicing at Hilgers and Watkins when it was called Hilgers, Watkins, and Kazen. Barbara Kazen was uh, a partner at the law firm, and she at the time was a preeminent family lawyer. She um, uh, very quickly uh, became involved in writing what was an 18-volume, I think, uh, practice manual from Texas Family Law called the Kazen on Texas Family Law, and I don't think I've done anything different from then to now. So today we're here to primarily talk about an issue that many family lawyers aren't very familiar with, and that is jury trials. Uh, I know you have quite a bit of experience doing jury trials. Uh, I've actually yet to do one, but I do have one coming up here in 2022. How many jury trials have you done in your career? 
Oh goodness, you know, I, I can't uh, I can't say. I, I did have to go back and get records to um, support my application to the American Board of Trial Advocates. So I know I have at least twenty. Um, there are many I have before the age of computers, for which I don't have the, uh, the details of information. That, by the way, is a tip to uh, young lawyers. Do keep records. Start your spreadsheet now, Holly, and make sure you keep the uh, details of the case uh, name, the case number, the uh, judge, the parties, and the issues, because you will need it. <laughs> so a lot of female lawyers don't have experience with doing jury trials because the issues are narrow that a jury can decide. And certainly there's a lot of you're rolling the dice, so to speak, when you have a jury. So what types of cases have you seen more often actually having a jury trial? That's a really good question. And I think you're right that family lawyers typically will advise a client that a jury trial is very expensive, that um, there's only a few things that a, a jury can decide. The judge is going to do the decision making on um, issues that are generally very important to them involving their children. So the cases that I see going into jury trial are ones where uh, often there's an imbalance in resources. The one with the greater resources will ask for a jury trial, uh, knowing that it will be more costly. Sometimes I see a jury trial requested from lawyers who uh, aren't as experienced as in family law. So they, um, they sort of think of that as a, um, a tactic that's in the litigator's bag but may not be best for what the situation is in a family law matter. And then finally, there are cases where there's truly a thought uh, by one or both of the parties that they want their peers to decide this, not a judge. Um, I've seen all of those manifestations. Uh, you're right that it's, it's rare that there really is a, a jury trial. Sometimes there's a demand and the dropping of the demand. But it's rare that it goes all the way through to a jury trial. So in the event you find yourself with a case that goes to a jury trial, what are some of the main differences between a jury trial and a bench trial? One of the main differences between a jury trial and a bench trial is cost. The jury trial is much more expensive. Generally, I will tell clients that uh, we're looking at perhaps twice as much money to try the case before a jury than we would before a judge. Um, another big issue has to do with the skill set required of the lawyer. I think that trying a case to a jury is very different from trying it to a judge, often whom you already know. So there's some different uh, flexibilities that the trial lawyer must bring to the task of relating to the jury. And then also, I think that there's a big issue involving uh, our skills as a lawyer to handle the procedures associated with a jury trial in a family law case. They are different from the procedures associated with any other kind of jury trial. So because the jury considers some issues and the judge decides other issues, should attorneys be considering bifurcating those? Absolutely. Bifurcation of a jury function and a judge function in a family law case um, works. It seems to be the kind of approach that uh, judges favor. Uh, often when I have done a family law jury trial, I um, 
finally, the opposing counsel hasn't done that before. And so we have to talk through the, what we mean by a bifurcated trial. And generally, we reach an agreement about the bifurcation. So if you are going to request bifurcating it, is there any particular deadline by when you need to do that? One of the differences between a jury trial and a bench trial are the pre-trial deadlines we have to pay attention to. Every court that I've been in has a different set of rules for jury trials and bench trials. So the first step is always to check your jurisdiction's um, special rules for jury trials. And generally, those special rules will have pre-trial deadlines that involve in one way or the other the identification of issues, the uh, requirement that counsel confer to see if they can resolve those issues, and if not, a setting of a pretrial conference to see if the court can resolve them before trial. I've also had the experience where a court will not do that before they call the case because the case won't be assigned to them until the day of trial. Usually that's in a, in a situation where we have um, a central docket and many judges on the docket, but again, individual judges might do that too because of their docket uh, demands. So now you mentioned you usually reach an agreement on the other side about bifurcation. If the other side is not willing to bifurcate, in your experience, have judges granted a motion to bifurcate or do they require agreement? My experience is that a judge will control the course of the case, control how the case will be conducted. Um, often we're educating uh, a court too. We often have turnover in our benches and some judges uh, haven't had a, a family law jury trial, and so they too have to familiarize themselves with what is a jury issue and what is a bench issue, and then they will do it as efficiently as possible. The motion to bifurcate really is just a way to signal to the judge, here's what we need to do, and, and here's our suggestion about how to go about doing it. So essentially what a judge will do is say, let's take what the judge needs, uh, jury needs to hear first, and then we'll take uh, what I need to hear alone uh, while the jury's out. So presumably there is a decent amount of overlap between what the jury would hear and what the judge would hear. Does the judge also consider what happened during the jury portion or are you starting completely fresh and you need to rehash everything? That's a really good question, Holly. Um, the idea uh, to achieve efficiency is not to have to do it twice. And much of what you're going to be presenting to the jury, you will want the judge to hear as well. For example, uh, a jury will, in a child-related case, determine uh, whether the parties, the parents ought to be joint managing conservators or one of them should be a sole managing conservator. If they're joint, the jury will decide whether um, one should have the right to determine the primary residence. Well, with that information, then the judge has to decide such things as the powers and allocation of powers and duties to the parents and then the possession schedule. Surely those issues will involve the same facts that went into the conservatorship decision. So um, that's, that's certainly what we'll do when we begin the judge phase uh, of the trial is refer back and, and remind the judge of what came before. And then we'll present additional information to help fill out what the judge needs to do. But you also raised another point, Holly, that I think is really important and often overlooked. And that is that family, the, the conservatorship issues aren't the only issues in a trial that a jury may decide. And so that's the key to your conference with opposing counsel and with the court to identify all 
factual disputes that need to be resolved so that you know going into your presentation of evidence when you're going to put on the evidence. For example, a factual dispute might be an award of attorney's fees. What is a reasonable and necessary attorney fee? Well, that's a factual issue. If it's disputed, does it go to the jury? Do you have to present all of that information before the jury? Boy, that can get messy. I've never had to do that because we've almost always, well, we have always uh, resolved the attorney fee issue by saying we are going to try before the jury issues number one, two, and three. And all other issues, including all other factual disputes, will be presented to the court for bench consideration only. With that clarification, then you won't be waiving claims that should be triable before the jury. So I can envision there being disputes about whether something is a fact issue or a legal issue. Um, for example, with a fit parent presumption or with you know, the, the parental presumption in the family code, you know, if we're, if we're trying to prove that a parent is unfit, you know, there are certain factual things that could lead to the conclusion that a parent is unfit. But I would think that that is ultimately a legal conclusion based upon whatever the facts were. How, and if, if the sides don't agree as to this is a jury issue or this is a judge issue, how do you handle it? This is an interesting question. One of the new things we have in our family law legal um, template that we have to deal with is, um, is the unfit parent statutory uh, approach uh, and and case-driven approach to determination of the, of, a, of the biological parent's rights. I think that the place to start always in a jury trial, well before the trial itself, is the charge. What is the question that a jury has to answer? That is the factual dispute. So if the question to be decided by the jury is, was this uh, should these two parents be named joint managing conservators or should one of them be named a sole managing conservator? That's the factual issue. And let's say the uh, jury decides that the alleged fit parent and unfit parent should be joint managing conservators. Your question raises the issue of, well, doesn't our evidence establish as a matter of law that the unfit parent cannot be a joint managing conservator? Another manifestation of that issue might be in a situation where there was family violence within two years of the filing. Um, we have statutory guidance on what the conservatorship should be in that situation. So again, my, my approach to that would be to cover all your bases, make sure that you are not failing to get the right issue that is a factual dispute presented to the jury. That is, submit the charge. Uh, for that issue, present the evidence on that issue, and then come back and talk to the judge. I can hardly imagine a situation where the factual um, evidence shows a parent to be unfit, and the result would be a jury would say, let's make them managing conservatories anyway. But we don't have a lot of guidance yet, do we, on what an unfit parent is? Right. And, you know, if, if we have a case between a parent and a non-parent, you know, let's say that it's Looking at CJC, where you had a non-parent, grandparents were kicked out, but if you had grandparents against a parent, 
and their child had died. A jury could be very sympathetic to that and may want to award the parent or the grandparent conservatorship, even though as a matter of law, it hasn't been proved that the parent is unfit. Very good point. And uh, this is this is a, a good example of why jury trials can be so much more expensive. What I would suggest in an unfit parent scenario is that first you start with pretrial motions, maybe even a motion for summary judgment. What are the facts that um, the grandparent is bringing forth to ask for conservatorship? And do they rise to the level of establishing as a matter of law that the parent and the biological parent is unfit? Try that in the summary judgment motion. If that you know, doesn't work, generally courts will carry that. Be sure to raise it again at the uh, conclusion of the presentation of the grandparents' uh, evidence uh, in a motion for a directed verdict. Be sure that that's already prepared and in your kit and ready to pull out. And then once the uh, jury verdict comes in, you may it may become moot at that point because of the, the finding of the jury. But if it's not, then you have another motion to present to the Court for a directed verdict at the end of the conclusion of all of the evidence. So you want to preserve it as far as you can in order to establish what you think the parameters for fit parenthood ought to be. And then, of course, you may be, if you have the resources in the case, looking at an appellate review of all of those steps and the facts you've developed. So, what other, you mentioned briefly about pretrial motions that we have in jury trials that we don't, in bench trials. We talked about a motion to bifurcate. What other pretrial motions do we need to be thinking about? I don't always do this uh, in every case, although I think rule, the court rules, specific court rules, are getting to the point where they require it. But I, I do like to know what the case is going to look at. So, I would like to have a, a list of witnesses a list of exhibits. Of course, we generally do limiting motions before trial as well. And if the court rules don't require that exchange, then I will usually file a motion and make it one of the pretrial orders so that we can talk to the court ahead of time. One of the big issues, especially during COVID, that I have found to be very um, effective is a request that we lawyers set the case up for the most efficient uh, presentation possible. So I will ask that we not only exchange the exhibit lists, but that we pre-agree on the pre-admission of those exhibits so that we don't have to go back and forth. Now, different judges handle that in different ways, but um, the judges who, who are able to manage the case most efficiently generally do rule in a way that minimizes the fight over admissibility, the requirement that we spend time giving foundational testimony. That, that will make the jury's eyes glaze over and will take a lot more time than needed. So you mentioned uh, motions in limine. For those who haven't thought about that since law school, can you kind of explain what a motion in limine is and why you would need to file one? A limine motion is uh, designed to force the lawyer not to get into that information without first approaching the bench at the point in the trial progress when the lawyer wants to present that information and to have a determination by the judge at that time on its admissibility. Now, most judges have a standard form limiting motion. So the uh, first thing to do, of course, is to pull up your court's uh, standard form because it will have the obvious stuff in it. So 
if the jury's not going to be deciding attorney's fees, you don't necessarily need to be talking about attorney's fees. If the jury's not going to be hearing about, um, oh, there, there are many other things about that, that are remote. One of the things I always look for in, in parenting cases is complaints about a parent that happened so long ago that it cannot really be relevant to current parenting issues. So you want to look for remote incidents and, and identify them. That would be something you would add to the standard jury uh, limiting form that the courts have. The problem with a limiting motion is that most of us lawyers don't really know how to deal with it. Um, the, the thing to be very clear about when you're going in is what am I supposed to stay away from? What am I supposed to not ask about? And if you bump up against something like that, then the best thing during trial is to ask the court, may we approach the bench, tell the court what you want to get into and then get some guidance. So let's say you file a motion in limine and it's granted that nobody's going to talk about anything, say, before the prior order. And the other side brings it up in testimony in violation of that granted motion in limine. How do you handle that? Of course, you have to immediately object, and um, the manner of objection uh, will either um, stimulate the jury's interest in what you're objecting to, or it will, um, they'll be so tired they won't care at that point, so you want to conduct yourself in a way that doesn't highlight and call attention to what, what's happening. And generally what you do is you stand up and say, Your Honor, may we approach the bench? May we approach the bench? So that then you can lodge your objection outside of the hearing of the jury, and generally what I find is that the court will say, um, objection granted, Ms. Rivers and other court, uh, lawyers instructed uh, to avoid that, that issue. And so then the other lawyer, we go back to our table and the other lawyer just moves on and it doesn't become a big issue in the case. All right. So one of the things you had mentioned to me about the differences between jury trial and bench trial is client preparation. So what is what makes it different if you're going before a jury? We all know how nerve-wracking it can be for our clients to go to court. Um, they are used to talking about their lives within a circle of friends who uh, appreciate them and understand them and who can tolerate their manner of speaking. When they get to our office, they're often so surprised that we tell them that won't work. Uh, <laughs> have to teach them how to be the best witness for themselves that they can be. We start with that in the very first consultation we have with our clients. We listen to them, we see how they present, we give them feedback about their case and options about how they may proceed. If they then decide to go ahead and hire us, then they pretty much got an idea of where we're going to be drawing the line in their presentation. Many times those uh, clients are going to need a lot of training on how to conduct themselves when they have a speaking part in the process. So that might happen at temporary orders. That might happen, um, it may not happen until a mediation and the only person they're going to get to talk to is the mediator, which of course is not as important as a fact finding, but it's still important. In a jury trial, not only are they having had to run the gauntlet of first talking to us as lawyers, and present themselves, then talking to us in our prep sessions before interim hearings, uh, then talking to us about how to conduct themselves in mediation. Now they're going to have to talk with us about how they're going to behave in court, how they're going to answer in court. My sessions with my clients 
leading up to a jury trial are always much more lengthy than they are if it's a bench trial. In a jury trial, I, I will have to develop points with more questions than I generally do before a judge. Usually, we will work with the client about how they sit in their chair, how they how they relate to not only their own lawyer, but opposing counsel so that they don't look like two different personalities in one sitting. Um, and we also have to teach them about how to be aware of the 12 people sitting in the box to their right or to their left. That's not an easy thing. Um, it's interesting how, to me, how um, different things are for, for lay people, for clients and witnesses in the Zoom age, because it seems like people are a whole lot more comfortable in this virtual platform than they are in person. So uh, I'm, I'm interested to see how when we emerge from this, whether, whether people are going to be better at it than, than they have been before having this experience. Do you go through the jury charge with your client? And to what extent are you discussing those issues with them? Absolutely. From the beginning. One of the things that we have to work out with our clients is an understanding about what our construction, what our instructions are from them. Do they want a jury trial? Sometimes the client will walk in in the first meeting and say, I want a jury because you know, my spouse was so bad about this, that, and the other. Um, and so we have to talk to them about jury trials, uh, whether whether we are thinking about it or the other side's thinking about it. We need to let them know what the issues are. We need to um, have them make a decision and instruct us whether they want a jury trial or not. They don't have a choice. If the other side's the one that's filed the jury demand, then we have to immediately begin instructing them, educating them about what that means. And I will almost always immediately start telling them what, um, what it is that a jury does. A jury must answer specific questions. And let's talk about what those questions are. And let's deconstruct from there. Let's go backwards. The question is, should you and your children's other parent be named joint managing conservators, or should one of you be named sole managing conservator? What is that going to mean? How are you going to be talking to the jury in a way that will help them answer that question? So that's how we that's how we teach them about what a jury is, what a charge is, and you know, they will not be able to follow all of the legal conversation about the jury charge. I will always give them the document ahead of time before it's before it's circulated. It, we don't generally have much involvement from the client when we're actually to the point of submitting discussing with the court and finalizing the charge. At least they know what a charge is and they know what it's all about. Is the jury charge one of the first things you do if you know you're going to have a jury trial? That certainly is the advice I've always heard everybody give. Um, I think in practice, it's not always done right away. It certainly is uh, at the top of the list of the issues to discuss with the client. But it's really not until we start talking about setting the case that I begin to work on the jury charge itself. Because again, I think at least half the time, if not more, when a jury charge is jury uh, demand is filed by the other side, they'll eventually drop it. So we don't want to do work I don't have to do. Um, I think the most problematical thing in a jury situation is when you have property issues not child-related issues. 
property issues in a very trial can be extremely complex and can involve very strategic decision-making on the part of the lawyer. And often you have to figure out how to address the issues in a way that you think is going to be persuasive. It may be that there's three different ways to pitch a particular case, a, pitch, a particular claim, and only one of them is particularly persuasive. And so you'll only submit one. You want to make sure your client understands you're only submitting one. You could say it three ways, but we're only going to say it one. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. And they need to be part of the decision-making, and you need to document the decision-making so you are, you have your jury trial and you're showing up the first day and it's time to pick a jury. So let's talk a little bit about Laura Dyer. Um, what are your key points of advice when thinking about Laura Dyer? First time you talk to a jury, you want to relate to that jury. You want that jury to think that you are giving them something they're interested in, to relate to you. Uh, an example, um, I tried a jury, uh, before a jury, a case involving uh, parental alienation. My client was the alienated parent. The alienating parent was the, um, was the respondent. Uh, we were the petitioner. And so my task in front of the jury right from the beginning was to somehow explain to the jury that we're coming in asking to be the, the primary parent primary conservator of those children who don't want to have anything to do with them, who have absolutely no interest in having contact whatsoever. So how do you do that? How do you start out that? And my opening question to the panel was, are children always right? Well, you can imagine the reaction. The whole panel just erupted with absolutely not and laughing and talking to each other and moving around. And it was the easiest board hour I've ever done because everybody has their own experience of what, um, what we're talking about. We're dealing with common themes that everybody knows something about. So if we move to a general understanding that children aren't always right to what can they be wrong about? How can they be influenced? What is appropriate influence? What's good for kids? What's not good for kids? You, you're just getting them to talk. If you find yourself talking more than you, they're talking, then change so that you can just be asking questions and getting them to give you their ideas. Then you can pick your, your jobs. To what extent, if at all, can you discuss anything from the case while you're doing board dire? I think it's an issue of timing. How much time do you have to talk with that jury? The difference between Bordire and opening statement is uh, in the degree of specificity that you're getting to. A court will certainly allow you to tell the panel, the entire panel, that you're going to be picking your jury from. What's the nature of the case? What sort of issues would be involved in Do you, jurors, potential jurors, have uh, any experience with or thoughts about these issues. Now, that does require you to explain the issues. So in the alienation case, for example, I would say I, I believe this case is going to involve uh, an issue of the children's preferences and uh, what they want in terms of who will be their primary caretaker after this divorce is over. 
And you want to be able to have usually one or two sentences to go to the heart of the main dispute. In that case, it might be, um, we in this case uh, will show, we believe that the children have been improperly influenced and so that their preferences they need to be taken care of by uh, adults. So you want to have a theme. You want to carry that theme from the first description of what the issue is. And then when you get to the opening statement, add a few facts to it and then carry the presentation. Do you use jury questionnaires when you're picking a jury? I have never done that. Um, over the years, I've noticed that our judges have developed a jury questionnaire themselves. Um, usually that information is sufficient. Um, I have had a couple of cases that involve um, high-profile uh, issues and personalities, and sometimes we do ask the court to do a little bit of um, preliminary questioning first. Judges, my, at least my judges, the ones that I have uh, tried cases in front of, aren't particularly interested in more work, and so we don't want to have another um, another hearing and another fight over stuff. We can avoid it. Um, I don't. I don't necessarily think it's that that important to do that. So, what types of things do jurors say that lead you to try to strike them for cause? In a child-related case, um, intense experience that seems to go against the, the position we're taking. Sometimes we'll have um, parents who have firmly formed attitudes about um, who should be um, the one to primarily care, care for the children. They might be gender-based. They might be... Um, have something to do with the ability to support the children. Um, it might have to do with a, an intense feeling that they've been ousted uh, from their uh, children's uh, upbringing to some period of time. So we want to look for intense feelings about parenting and see how those flow. That's, that's very important in any child-related case. In property cases, you'll want to find out if people have um, have some, some serious issues where they felt like they've been wronged. What is the nature of that wrong? And generally, if you find if you find that, then the court will call the person up uh, to the bench, and the lawyers will have a chance to question that that potential juror further. And depending on how intense uh, the feeling is, usually they will say something that the judge will say, "Thank you, counsel." We'll go back, and then the judge will talk with us and say, "Do you both agree that person would be stricken?" So usually, I don't have to use a strike for them. Usually, we'll end up um, getting them off the pen at that point. So if the other side doesn't agree that they should be struck for cause, are you going to have to use your one of your own strikes or is the judge possibly going to strike without an agreement? The way that the court generally resolves the um, request to strike, in, at least in my experience, has to do with how the potential drawer answered the question, can you set aside that feeling and, and obey the judge's instructions? And how well they answer that question will usually uh, determine the judge's ruling. Um, the better they answer that question, the less likely the court's going to strike them, and the more likely you're going to have to use a strike. So there comes your technique for uh, evaluating your panel. And that, that's, a, that's the most intense 10 minutes in the entire trial, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so in family law cases, usually we only have two parties, you know, the mom versus dad or husband versus wife or what have you. But every once in a while, we have a third party or even more than that in the case. 
Is there a time when we should be moving to equalize strikes? I think you should always do that if it favors you um, uh, and oppose it if it doesn't. Uh, a third party in a case can be, for example, a grandparent or some other important person in the children's lives. And generally, there's an alignment of some sort. And you will want to know where that alignment is. If you're on the, on the short end of that stick, if, if the alignment is on the other side, you're going to want to limit their number of strikes. And I do think that courts will generally begin to simplify the case and start with the, uh, an identification of the parties' positions and maybe causing them to go together and, and exercise a certain number of strikes is the way to do it. One time, I think I remember I have a, had a situation where one side had six and the other side would have had 12. What the court did is give them nine when they exercised them together because there were some differences between the two sides and, and there were some, some similarities between those two sides. And I think, I don't remember whether they got to exercise and you know, got to meet together or not. I don't think the judge monitors that. So. But yeah, I, I do think that that's a, always a good trick, Holly. And I, I suggest that you think about it depending on, on what you got. Is that something that would need to be filed along with the other pretrial motions? Or can you raise that issue at Fort Dyer? My experience is always raise everything you can as early as possible. You want to have it, uh, you want to be raise it early and speak it often. Uh, many chances to talk about it. That's basically every time you talk about it, you're going to you're going to do it better the next time. You're going to get feedback from the judge. You're going to get the judge's um, feeling about it, and the judge will, will almost uh, always be open for further conversation as as the case develops. Often the first the first answer from the court is, "Let's see how things go." So now we have our jury, and we're starting our presentation of our case. What tips do you have as far as opening argument in a jury trial? Um, be brief, be specific, and um, give them things they'll remember. Um, I, I would say don't take more than 10 minutes. If you can take five, you're better off. You're basically just going to give them bullet points. These are the things we are going to show. These are the things we want. Uh, we expect that um, you will find and frame it in terms of the jury charge. So, so you'll, you know, Mr. So-and-so, my client, is here today to show that his children need him to take care of them most of the days of their lives, to take care of their school, to take care of getting their dental appointments, to take care of getting their doctor appointments. He will be here today to show you that he must do that because he's always done it and because um to leave it to their mother means they will not get it. Whatever it is, it's a summary of what the evidence is that we're going to be showing. So you're going to leave them in your opening line. We expect to show that blank, blank, blank. Do you use anything like a PowerPoint when you're doing an opening statement to try and emphasize anything or provide extra information for the jury? I never have. I have often wondered whether it would be useful. I think it's Rick Robertson. Uh, he has a lovely uh, talk he gives about PowerPoints that show pictures. So um, a picture's worth a thousand words. If you can be talking, you've got a five-minute display and you can just click through a few pictures. Why Why this father's an active father? That, that's not a bad thing to do. Um, in my experience, uh, the courtrooms that I've been in have often not been very conducive to trying to get the jury to look over at a screen and look at me too. 
So you will want to make sure your layout works. Um, that you're not just distracting the jury from what you want to see. Uh, I'll tell you a story. I, I have a, a daughter-in-law is in the military, and she speaks about um, one of her com uh, commanding officers who was so effective because every time he stood up to talk, he had one picture, one picture. And the one picture he had said everything he wanted to say. And that, that struck me as really important. So I read the man's book, and he's really good about that. He, he, has, he has the ability to summarize what he wants to convey with one image. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I would say it used to be we had poster boards. And I, I, I have had a, a, an easel with a poster board on it that has something, something that I wanted to emphasize. And that, of course, can be accomplished with those little screens that are in front of the original panel. In terms of witnesses, be that your client or any other witnesses that you're, you're calling, I know you mentioned earlier that it may take more questions in a jury trial. Can you go a little bit deeper into that and what the differences are there? What you want the jury to see, your client, is um, something more than the initial impression. You want to see something deep about his or her ability. Again, in a child-related case, is her ability to be a parent. And so uh, I might spend more time questioning about what, what his or her experience was in becoming a parent. What was it like when your baby was born? What did you do? How did you become involved? Uh, what sort of time did you take off from work? Um, how, what do your friends know about your, your uh, devotion as a father? You want to get a background that gives a description of the whole person, which would probably go into more depth than you would with the court. The courts get that information very quickly. Then you'll want to get to the, the uh, part of the narrative that involves the breakup of the family. What caused it? How did it happen? And you want to be able to do that in a way that doesn't sound accusatory and judgmental about the other parent. Um, essentially, there's a notion that the parent who is best able to love the children despite anger or antipathy toward the other parent is going to be superior than the one who is consumed by anger. So you want to be able to get through the surface of that. Often I have people come in and say, my, my husband is the nicest person in the world. If you met him on the street, everybody thinks he's just great. But boy, when behind closed doors, they will have a, a notion that there's a different personality that presents within the family unit and out in the world. And you will want to be able to delve into that with, with anecdotes, with questions, with issues about actually how to live their lives. That takes time. So I usually use a 50, I, I have two rules. One is what I call the 80-20 rule, which is I'm going to devote 80% of my questioning time to the parties. The parents are going to be going to be the ones who are going to give the best information. 20% is going to be the collateral. So the other is a 15-minute rule. I probably won't spend more than 15 minutes questioning somebody about that. But because again, you're going to be losing your audience's interest that um, you want to develop it enough so that if we get to that pause point, we've gotten the history down, it might be time for a break. You want to kind of keep your eye on the clock all the time. If there's a break, then let them go take their break, thinking about, hmm, that guy was the coach of the soccer team and the basketball team and the baseball team, and he took his daughter to, 
to um, to gymnastics and ballet, you know, something. So they're going to compare whatever they heard to their own experience and want them to make it make it something they can understand. Do you? How do you handle exhibits when you're in a jury trial? Because the jury can't see them until they've been admitted, and presumably there are going to be some that weren't agreed upon as being admissible. So how do you handle that? The exhibit first has to be prepped for display. So you talked about um, PowerPoints. You will want to have some means of showing of riveting the jury's eyes to be part of the specific exhibit you want. Now, the foundation that you have to give for that exhibit will vary depending on how your pretrials work. If it's already in evidence, then you can say, um, Mr. Smith, I want to direct your attention what has been admitted as exhibit number, as petitioner's exhibit number one. I want to direct your attention to page two, the portion I've got highlighted. And I'll be walking over and handing him that exhibit, or on Zoom lately, I've been doing it electronically. Now, will you look at the highlighted portion of exhibit number one? Explain what that is. Now, you've got them looking at the highlighted portion of the exhibit, not the whole exhibit, you're not wasting time and everything else, and you're having him basically explain, setting up what they're looking at. This is an email I got from my wife um, three weeks ago in which she... Um, and then you can fill in the blank from there. It can usually be, usually it's something pretty outrageous and um, ex- it explains the point of uh, maybe lack of control or excessive um, anger or some, something that that you just want, you want it to be the front and center. And so all they're going to be looking at is the bolded, highlighted portion that he's explaining what that is in the context. What about when it hasn't already been admitted? So in the course of the trial, you've always got the jury in your peripheral vision. You've got the exhibit in your hand. You've got the witness that you're paying attention to. You've got the judge that you always want to track and make sure you know what's happening. You're going to walk up to the exhibit. may approach the witness. I'm showing you, Mr. Smith, uh, what has been marked as exhibit number one. Can you briefly describe what that is? He'll say something. You've already prepped him on what, on what foundational information is. Um, this is an email I received from my wife three uh, three weeks ago about the children. Your Honor, I'll for exhibit number one. I will I will almost always attempt to get the get the exhibit admitted as soon as possible. And, and generally, we lawyers get into a rhythm uh, where we know what's going to be admitted and what's not, and, and we don't want to be the one who is standing up and making the kinds of objections that prolong the case unnecessarily. Your Honor, objection, foundation. Um, so saying, now you've got to go and ask another question. Um, generally, I have found that that doesn't, that doesn't happen often and certainly not always in the case. So we're just about out of time, but what are there any other jury trial tips that we haven't talked about that you think are worth mentioning? Yes, I, I think that an often overlooked important step in a jury trial is the charge conference. So you have to know what your charge is going to be before it's read to the jury. And if there is any dispute about that, um, you're going to be paying attention to it from the first pretrial conference throughout the course of the case. So um, remember what the 
obligations are to point out any objections you have to the charge that's ultimately approved by the court and to preserve those objections. And, and remember that it's hard to do that because the, the court is going to be pushing through the charge alone behind the scenes while you're trying the case. And usually at the end of every day, well, counsel, I've got um, some questions about the charge and uh, here's my new draft about it. And generally that's not recorded. So what you're going to want to do is be prepared for your charge conference. Ideally, and of course, in the appellate world, appellate lawyers will always say, get an appellate lawyer there to do that for you. In my experience, most clients can't afford that. And so you're going to have to be both the trial lawyer and the appellate lawyer, um, however um, inopportune that may be. So just be aware. Be aware of the charge and preserving any objections to the charge. If you need to, you've never done it before, go in and with your trial notebook and the charge tab and have objections to charge just already written out um, so that you'll have them and, and be sure that you say, uh, for the record, I need, to, uh, I need to watch my objections. And the judge will give you that, of course. So you, you'll want to be sure to keep your record uh, clean about uh, anything you don't like about the charge. So one last question. This is something I like to ask everybody who comes on the podcast. If you could give one piece of advice to young lawyers, what would it be? Oh, my. Take care of yourself. This is very, very hard work. We do. Kind of intimacy that we are invited to participate in, the grueling. Uh, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. And I think every lawyer from the beginning needs to learn how to tend to the physical, mental, and emotional well being. Physically, moderation in all things. Stand up. I sat down too long. Stand up. Get some exercise. Be careful about those 18 hour days, day after day after day. Give yourself some. some some breaks. Mentally, make sure that you understand the demands that are on you and that you manage them well. You know what your workflow is. You manage it in a way that doesn't increase anxiety, but rather helps you alleviate anxiety. Be good to the people around you. They will help you. That will help your mental state of being day after day after day. When I say take care of yourself spiritually, I absolutely convinced that a successful life as a lawyer requires alignment between what you do and what your values are. If you love what you do, if you love why you're doing it, if you know the importance of it, you will feel meaning and purpose in your life as a lawyer. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, for any of our listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave us a review so you can enjoy future episodes. The Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast is sponsored by the Draper Law Firm. We help people navigate divorce and child custody cases and handle family law appellate matters. For more information, visit our website at www.draperfirm.com.